Okay, welcome everybody. I'm Teresa Reed, I'm Vice Chair of the Program Committee for the League of Women Voters of Washtenaw County. Tonight, we're happy to present our first of three quarterly programs exploring Washtenaw County's response to the climate crisis. Our Lunch and Learn programs held on the fourth Friday of the month. These are also dedicated to the environment and climate crisis this quarter. Just as we discovered in our last quarter's programs focusing on the criminal legal system, Washtenaw County is a model for forward-looking collaboration to address this extraordinarily complex problem. In August of 2021, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, called IPCC for short, issued its sixth report. For the first time since its founding in 1988, the IPCC speaks with certainty about the total responsibility of human activity for rising temperatures and warns that the planet will warm by 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next two decades without drastic moves to eliminate greenhouse gas pollution. As we all know from painful experience, climate change brings catastrophic heat, cold, floods, drought, storms, and, the, and wildfires. We can expect more crop failures, species extinction, heat-borne diseases, civil and international conflict over disappearing resources, and overwhelming flows of millions of climate refugees. Even if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases tomorrow, sea level will continue to rise as polar ice melts in a warmer world. It is no wonder that Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, called the IPCC's latest report a code red for humanity. Guterres continued, this report must sound a death knell for coal and fossil fuels before they destroy our planet. Tonight's program is titled Energy Innovation for a Clean Future, the Carbon Dividend Act and Alternatives. Carbon pricing is one of the measures that many experts and activists believe can be implemented quickly and can dramatically lower carbon emissions. Citizens Climate Lobby is a grassroots nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose mission is to create the political will for a livable world. Thousands of volunteers across the country build respectful relationships with their members of Congress to advocate for effective national policies to address climate change, believing that bipartisan support is essential for creating durable climate policy. CCL volunteers have been promoting a proposal called Carbon Fee and Dividend since 2008. The Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2021, HR 2307, is designed to help reduce America's carbon pollution to net zero by 2050. I'll let our first speaker, Mary Garten, explain how that works. Before Mary speaks, though, I want to thank three members of the League's Environmental Advocacy Group, Sandra Serini-Elser, Vicki Paulison, and Kathy Weinman. These women and colleagues have brought terrific expertise and connections to our environmental planning programming. <laughs> thank you. Okay, Mary Garten has been a CCL volunteer for nearly five years, involved in climate action at the local, state, and national levels, with a focus on the national level. Ms. Garden has participated in 28 lobby meetings with 15 different members of Congress or their legislative aides, both on Capitol Hill and here in district. 
Dr. Missy Stultz is the Sustainability and Innovations Manager for the City of Ann Arbor, working with all players to implement the A20 Carbon Neutrality Plan. Dr. Stultz has a PhD in Urban Resilience from the University of Michigan and a Master's in Climate and Society from Columbia University. Mary? Thank you very much. And thank you so much for the introduction, Teresa, and for getting us up to speed on climate change. As Teresa said, we are a nonpartisan grassroots organization of volunteers. I am a volunteer member of the Ann Arbor chapter, and we do come from all walks of life and just to do something about climate change. Our chapters work to get national legislation to reduce emissions. Um, as Teresa said, you all know that oil and gas releases CO2 into the atmosphere, which traps heat. Right now, there's 43% more CO2 in the air than there was a few decades ago. Of the 20 hottest years on record, 19 of them have been in the last 19 years. This trend of planetary warming causes a variety of extreme weather events, as Teresa mentioned. Heat waves are occurring three times more often in the US now than they did just 50 years ago. And all over the world, droughts are more common and they have been lasting longer. Wildfire seasons have lengthened all over the world, burning more land than before. This fire in California burned over half the size of Rhode Island. Since 1972, the average area burned each year in California has increased 500%. The extra heat that evaporates water from the soil, causing droughts, heat waves, and wildfires in one place, also evaporates more water from the ocean. So a key fact as to why global warming causes extreme weather is that warmer air can hold a lot more water. So for every one degree increase in air temperature, that air can hold another 7% of water vapor, which is why hurricanes have been stronger and they're dumping more water than they used to. Microbursts like this are becoming more common. Houston has had three separate one in 500 year downpours in just three years. So that means that an event with just a 0.2% chance, that's what that means, one in 500, of happening in any one year has happened three years in a row. So extraordinary events that used to be rare are now happening more often. This is a graph of record-breaking precipitation anomalies. Now, globally, these extreme rainfall events now occur five times more often than in 1980. I highlighted 1980 in pink, which is when I was in middle school, and it wasn't that long ago. And here, we lay it against 2016. We had twice as many, three times, four times, about five times as many extreme record-breaking storms globally as we did in 1980, which if you look at it, wasn't even uh, a low year. Extreme rainfall has caused flooding all over the world, leaving hundreds of thousands of people displaced or homeless. And the US Defense Department said that climate change poses immediate risks to US national security and will intensify the challenges of global instability, hunger, poverty, and conflict. The gravest effects of all attacks on the environment are suffered by the poorest who ironically have contributed least to the problem. Okay, so how do we stop climate change without further burdening those who are already disproportionately being hurt? Those are CCL's two requirements. We want a policy that is big enough for the enormity of the problem, and it must protect at bare minimum, the least 40% wealthy of Americans. 
I didn't say that right, but you got it. Our preferred solution, which I'll explain in a bit, does much better than the 40% of the least wealthy. So to stop further climate change, we have to dramatically reduce our use of coal, oil, and gas. The IPCC, which is the international body that Teresa mentioned of scientists and experts whose reports are what we base our climate knowledge on, they said that explicit carbon prices remain a necessary condition of ambitious climate policies. In fact, the IPCC laid out a very high carbon price that we need to achieve. A price on carbon means putting a fee on the emission of greenhouse gases, by which we mean carbon dioxide and methane pollution mainly, and those come from burning coal, oil, and gas. Now, right now, it is free to pollute the air. And that's why fossil fuels are so appealingly inexpensive. The low prices, which have allowed for ubiquitous use of fossil fuels everywhere, have not reflected their true costs when all of the damage is considered. And we are literally subsidizing fossil fuels by paying for all of these downstream costs. We pay for higher insurance, property damage, new infrastructure. We pay for political instability with military spending. We subsidize all of this financially to the tunes of billions of dollars, but also not just with money, but in health problems and in lives lost. So these subsidies that we pay are what allow fossil fuels to be so cheap and attractive to use and keep going. So when we remove these implied subsidies by putting a fee on fossil fuels, then dirty fuels cost more than our clean options. Non-polluting energy comes out cheaper. By steadily increasing the fee, fossil fuels get phased out and replaced. They literally get priced out of the market, but in a way that we can adjust to. And this is what drives the economy-wide transition to renewables. A carbon dividend plan has two parts, putting a price on carbon and then giving that money to American citizens. The carbon fee is the part that rapidly reduces the emissions, but the dividend is what protects average Americans from higher prices. So I want to talk about carbon pricing first. We charge the fossil fuel companies a fee on oil, gas, and coal at the fossil fuel extraction point, which means at the well, at the mine, or the first point of sale. It's like a sales tax, but it's way upstream. To explain why the fees are collected so far upstream, the EPA shows us that carbon emissions occur all throughout the economy. A simple gasoline tax, for example, would only target 29% of emissions. You want to assess the fees where the fossil fuels first hit the economy upstream so that the electrical grid, industrial energy, and the natural gas that heats all our buildings all get reduced all at the same time. Now, it is easy to collect these fees upstream because there are fewer places. We don't need to hire a huge staff of people and build a bureaucracy to test emissions on every smokestack and tailpipe. And because all these sectors of the economy are downstream from the fee, all those emissions are covered. Now, the fee starts low, so it doesn't shock the economy. We have seen with COVID how the economy suffers after a major sudden change. There needs to be time to adjust, so the fee starts low and increases steadily every year. And this predictable increase allows industries, investors to see what's on the horizon and calculate how quickly those fuel prices are gonna rise so that they can plan how they're gonna reduce costs to avoid paying those higher prices. And here's the key, reducing energy costs also reduces emissions. 
The predictable expense of fossil fuels tells industries and businesses to reduce their energy use. But the decisions about how to do that are made by everybody. Okay, for example, right now, fuel prices go up and down. So price spikes don't change behavior. People don't dump their cars or whatever. Everybody assumes the price will go back down. But once a carbon fee passes, everybody will know that the price of fossil fuel will go up and then up more, and it won't get cheaper again. It's permanent. So seeing what's on the horizon and knowing that fuel prices will keep getting more and more expensive is what drives energy saving behavior and a switch to green energy in every sector of the economy. Renewables are gonna be the cheapest option, more and more so. The price gap between fossil fuels and clean energy getting wider and wider. Now this man's thought process as he considers the high price of gas in the future and planning how he's gonna conserve energy to save fuel to save money, that's the thought process we're all, individual and corporate, gonna do to stay in our budgets as fuel prices continue to go up. Everybody who goes car shopping is going to factor in higher gas prices. The other reason I used a gas station example is because everybody asks, how much will the price of gas go up? It depends on the initial fee and the rate of annual increase. I will say different bills in Congress are different, but for the Energy Innovation Act, it's not high enough to cause too much pain at the pump yet. It's about 10 cents a year. Note that pain and hardship are not necessary to cause emissions reductions. It's the price signal on the horizon that drives the changes. It's the awareness that prices are not gonna go back down. The knowledge that fossil fuel will definitely become priced out of their budget in the future. So this price signal drives the transition across all sectors that emit greenhouse gases all at the same time. Everybody and every industry that takes a step towards polluting less is going to save money. Now for individuals, maybe public transportation or cycling or carpooling might work better for some, which provides a 50% reduction in emissions from one fewer car, right? People with long commutes might reduce their cost by, oh, moving closer to work, using regional transportation, carpooling, maybe teleworking a few days a week. The reason I'm mentioning all these energy savings that I'm sure you are all well known to you is that there are many ways to reduce emissions and one size does not fit all. A carbon price preserves the freedom of choice for everyone. There's no mandate that everybody must do a certain thing. And if there's one thing this pandemic showed us, it's how unhappy and unwilling many Americans are about complying with government mandates, pleas, and incentives. Instead, the decisions about how to most inexpensively reduce fuel costs are left to individuals, business owners, and industries who really best know their situation and what choices will work for them. Now, some rural families can't carpool. They really need a car, but they might trade in their current car for an efficient model. A business that relies on a specific vehicle might not be able to give it up, but instead they could reduce waste by weatherization, building efficiency, maybe solar panels, until there's an affordable electric version of that vehicle that they need. LEDs use 75% less energy than incandescent bulbs. 90% of the energy in a washing machine is used by heating the water and is saved by washing on cold. Most climate activists already do these things, but there are 300 million people in this country and many of them have not taken these very simple steps. There hasn't been enough incentive. 
But all of these are important because every ton of CO2 that is not put into the atmosphere is a ton of CO2 that does not trap heat. Now, economists favor a carbon price as the fastest and most efficient approach because millions of big and even small money-saving decisions by 200 million people every day across every sector of the economy, it all adds up. Now, a price on carbon releases everyone's creativity to look for ways to reduce energy costs. There is a financial incentive for innovators to look for ways to reduce energy in appliances, industrial equipment, building design, transportation, tasks of daily working and leisure life. But there's also a financial incentive for consumers to seek out those money-saving innovations. These incentives provide a marketplace for innovation. There have been technology breakthroughs, better solar panels and biofuel from algae, magnetic refrigerators, five-minute electric car charging, so many more. Many ideas have gone nowhere because there's no incentive for investors to support these technologies and get them to market. A carbon price would incentivize that. Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy studied the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And they concluded that implementing EICDA as a standalone policy by itself leads to emissions reductions of 36 to 38% by 2030. Most of the near-term reductions occur in the power sector where emissions fall precipitously and coal is nearly eliminated by 2030. Local air quality, especially in neighborhoods near power plants is improved with NOx declining by 75% and SOx and mercury declining by 95%. Now that's fast, which is so important because the sooner air quality improves, the more lives in these frontline communities around power plants will be saved from illness and death caused by local air pollution. Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy said that the first and most immediate effect our carbon fee would have to be, would be the rapid transition to renewable energy in the power sector. Power companies will switch to renewables if there's a carbon fee. Money drives their purchases. For example, the city of Atlanta passed a climate, chain, a climate plan to reduce emissions. And then it turned out that although they had this plan for emission reductions, the goals the city had set were impossible to meet because their power company didn't want to use more renewable energy. And Georgia Power said it, it would not switch. The director of GP said it was basic economics. They're bound by state legislators to make decisions that prioritize cost. They have already switched from coal to gas because gas is cheaper now. But the director said that if government were to put a price on carbon, which would make renewables cheaper than gas, then Georgia Power would use more renewables. Conversely, unfortunately, he said that if coal became cheaper somehow, they would go back to coal. Money is what drives their decisions, not public opinion, not climate change, it's cost. So if it's cheaper to use renewables than fossil fuels, renewables will be used. If it's cheaper to conserve energy, then energy will be conserved. It's that simple. Now I'd like to show you a few scenarios from a project by MIT, Climate Interactive, Ventana, and the Climate Change Initiative. It's a modeling tool called En-ROADS. It's been used in briefings for US members of Congress, universities, local governments, businesses, the State Department, Chinese government, and the UN Secretary General's office. 
The En-ROADS model was updated last year to take into account all the recent developments and findings, and it fits the historical data that we have. It also tracks well with many other models. En-ROADS is the blue line, and you can see it fits these trajectories of other integrated assessment models. Here's what En-ROADS shows us. This shows business as usual today. For simplicity, focus on the orange square. Right now, we're looking at a temperature increase of 3.6 degrees by 2100. The goal is 1.5 degrees. So this is far from where we want to be. The graph shows our ongoing increase in emissions. This curve needs to bend down steeply. Okay, so let's look at policies that target coal, oil, and gas and increase renewables. We get three degrees, which is better than 3.6, but it's not enough. So let's add incentives for non-motorized and public transport, increase large and small vehicle, airplane and train efficiency, incentivize electric vehicles, and then we offer energy efficiency and electrification programs for buildings. And with all that, we get to 2.5 degrees. Not bad, but not sufficient. However, if we go back to business as usual and only install our steadily rising carbon fee, we get the same result, 2.5 degrees. With a carbon price on board, if we then add energy efficiency, electrification incentives, and infrastructure for vehicles, buildings, and industry, on top of the carbon price, we start making further progress down to 2.2 degrees. The En-ROADS model tells us we need to save forests, plant trees, and add some carbon capture to meet the target of 1.5 degrees. So here's what worries me. If we try to do all of these things separately and piecemeal, using only regulations and incentives without a carbon price in the mix, that is a lot of legislation to get passed in a very divided Congress. And all of it takes time, time to pass and time to implement. The Clean Power Plan, for example, was signed by President Obama, but because of its complexity, the first enforceable carbon limits weren't even scheduled to kick in until next year. That's seven years after it was passed. Furthermore, it wouldn't ramp up to full effect until 2030, 15 years after Obama signed it. In that time, Trump eliminated it, so it will never start. With our time window shrinking, we need to think strategically about speed. What big steps can we take quickly that will start working quickly? Carbon taxes need very little administration. It's just a fee collected at the source. That's it. This simplicity is why it will be implemented nine months after it gets passed. That's in the bill. It actually starts reducing emissions as soon as it gets signed into law because that's when the price signal starts. Compare that to the seven year delay of the clean power plan. Frontline communities deserve better air quality without the weight. The prevalence of asthma in Detroit is 30% higher than the rest of Michigan. We need many solutions, all solutions practically, but the single most important and effective first solution is a carbon, carbon fee. This graph shows what happened when Australia had a carbon tax. In nine months, emissions went down. Unfortunately, they didn't have a dividend and that undermined support. The new government replaced the carbon price with incentives called the Emissions Reduction Fund. It took a long time to even begin to flatten the curve and emissions are way higher now after dropping that carbon price. Who supports a carbon price? The US Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable do which is especially important for Republican support. There are conservative organizations like Republic N 
and Students for Carbon Dividends, Young Conservations for Carbon Dividends, and the Baker Schultz Coalition. Recently, a group of Utah Republican lawmakers published an op-ed advocating carbon dividends. A majority of Americans at a four to one ratio support carbon dividends. Democrats favor it by 16 to one. Republicans support it two to one. Young Republicans under 40 support it seven to one. And nevertheless, Republican members of Congress are not really yet participating in climate action. We keep trying because in principle, this should appeal to both sides of the aisle. On the Democratic side, the US Senate Democrats Committee on the Climate Crisis, and in the US House, the Committee on the Climate Crisis, said we need to include a carbon price as a tool in our climate action. The IPCC who gave us our 1.5 degree goal described a carbon price as a necessary condition of ambitious climate policy. Now, some of you might be familiar with Project Drawdown. Student solutions to climate change are presented with detailed information about the degree of benefit from each. Clicking on any option, and here I chose at random, really, efficient ocean shipping, you get a projected gigatons of CO2 either reduced or sequestered, the upfront cost to implement the solution, the lifetime net savings, a general overview, and a summary of the solution with some specifics, and if you click here, you'll see information about methodology and all the citations they used. These solutions are really interesting and doable. The author and founder of the Drawdown Project told CCL that he supports what we do. So we asked him why carbon pricing wasn't listed as one of those solutions. And his response was, because carbon pricing isn't a solution. Wind and solar and building efficiency are solutions. Carbon pricing is a policy that makes it easier and faster to get all of these solutions in place. So hmm, here's Paul Hawken talking about carbon pricing as it relates to the solutions in Project Drawdown. There is no single policy that would have the greatest impact or the greater impact than pricing carbon. There's no question about it. There is not a single um, solution there except for the education of girls and empowering women that would not be uh, empowered and accelerated by carbon pricing. And that's what CCL really does. I love your focus. The League of Women Voters says it stands united with and in support of efforts to price carbon emissions, whether cap and trade, carbon tax or fee, or other viable pricing mechanisms. For carbon pricing, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividends Act is the front runner in the House with 85 co-sponsors. Unfortunately, none of these are Republican, even though it was initially introduced bipartisan. Our primary Republicans retired last year. It matters because in regular order, nothing can be passed without at least 10 Republicans in the Senate. To show you the lay of the land as of now, there are five different carbon tax or dividend bills in Congress. Two have nine co-sponsors, and a couple of them have fewer. Ours has 85. They all reduce emissions. The questions are, how much do they reduce and how fast? That's determined by the initial price, the trajectory of the increase, by where the price is placed, and whether there's a cap on the maximum price. Of these proposals, they're all either mid or upstream, which is great. The higher upstream you collect the fee, the more sectors you cover. 
The EICDA covers over 83% of all carbon emissions, which is comparatively huge. So this graph to 2014 is petroleum use comparing British Columbia with the rest of Canada. In 2008, where the dotted line is, BC instituted a carbon tax, way downstream though. It's added at the gas pump and it's tacked on to natural gas bills. I don't know how much of their emissions is covered, but being levied so far downstream, it's, it's a lot less than 83% for sure. Even so, the results were dramatic in the first five years and were attributed to changing the culture of energy use in British Columbia, which kind of perfectly describes what a price signal is. The impact of the tax was unfortunately not sustained in the long run because in 2012, they capped it at $22. A continually rising price is necessary to get the full price signal. The EICDA will meet and pass that $22 in its second year. The takeaways from this slide are that even a downstream fee had surprisingly good results, upstream would have been better. Also, the fee worked and it worked immediately. And capping the price sabotages the price signal. The message received when there's a cap is that you only have to conserve enough energy to make that, that one maximum higher price fit into your budget. Because it's not going to go up anymore, there's no need to do anymore. The fee needs to rise continually so that carbon fuels are priced out. Mm, okay, I'd like to show you comparative emissions from different carbon pricing bills. The black is baseline, our current trajectory, which is bad. On the far right in yellow is the IPCC goal that will keep us at 1.5 degrees. So emissions need to shrink from where we are in black on the left to the height of the yellow bar on the right, that's the goal. The red is the clean power plan that I've mentioned before, regulations for power plants that were eliminated by Trump. Next in blue is a Republican, all Republican proposal. It's a lot like the EICDA, but it starts higher and then it increases super slow. So coal is eliminated right away, but then it levels off almost like a cap before natural gas gets taken out. This performs less well than the other bills, reminding us no caps. In purple is the bill from Senator Whitehouse. In green is the EICDA. Aqua is Senator Durbin's bill. And orange is another from Senator Coons. Again, yellow is the goal the IPC set for us to meet 1.5 degrees. Notice the carbon prices will all work immediately. In the first five years, they drop emissions well below the goal of the IPC and the Paris Climate Accords, which is the dotted line. 10 years down the road, almost all of them exceed the IPCC goal, and that's 10 years of being on a safe trajectory with any of these carbon prices. 15 years later, almost every carbon pricing bill is still either surpassing the IPCC goal or almost, nearly. And 20 years later, all of these bills are still reducing emissions. They haven't stopped moving emissions down, but some sectors are resistant enough to need targeting. The ICDA will reduce 80% of the emissions we need and regulations, incentives, infrastructure, grants, and assistance will be needed for the remaining 20%. I think these graphs are stark reminders that all emissions economy-wide need to go down. Policies like the Clean Power Plan and its relatives would make headway for sure in the power sector, but we need so much more than that and at a much faster speed. A carbon price can work with other tools and make national, state, and local policies more appealing 
and more financially sensible to the public and easier to implement. Unlike other climate approaches though, all of these bills generate billions of dollars in revenue. So the last question is, how fair is this solution? To answer this, we look at the many ways the money can be spent. Each bill does it differently. You'll see some transition assistance for energy workers, state grants, research and development, some rebates. And these are just highlights, of course, to fit on the, the slide, right? This is a nice way to eyeball the kinds of choices that were proposed last session. CCL prefers the EICDA on the far left, where all of the fees are given back in equal shares to all adult Americans, with those under 18 getting half a share each as a monthly dividend or rebate check. This is money they can spend any way they want. This is highly progressive and ensures that lower and middle income people are protected from higher energy prices. To explain, this graph compares carbon footprints of people with increasingly higher incomes. On average, the higher someone's income, the higher the CO2 emissions and the pollution they're responsible for. In fact, the top two percenters who emit so much pollution they have their own separate bar emit four times as much global warming pollution as those in the lowest income group. There is the pollution contribution of the lowest income group compared to the top income group. So the top 2% are the heaviest polluters by far. On average, wealthier people travel more, have bigger houses and have more stuff. The more stuff, the more embedded carbon went into making it. When equal dividends are returned to people though, those who pollute less than average for Americans, which means these folks, will not only be protected from increased costs, they'll end up receiving more cash back than they spent on higher prices. So let's get real and talk about costs. Some of those steadily rising fuel costs get passed on to consumers, raising the prices of some things. On the left, we're gonna have the lowest income families, and on the right, we're gonna have the highest incomes, just like the last graph. Costs that are likely to go up for people are gas and electricity, costs of high carbon purchases, and especially investments like stock portfolios and CDs. Again, these increased costs are caused by power companies and big emitters passing on some of the fees to the consumer. But the elegance of this policy is that these higher costs are proportionate to consumption. That is the whole point of an economy-wide carbon fee. Any higher prices that you're gonna pay are a direct result of the carbon pollution that you are responsible for. Wealthier people who on average buy more stuff and invest more in fossil fuels are therefore responsible for the most emissions. So their costs are gonna go up substantially more than lower income folks. So this is how much average households will pay the first year in additional costs for all that stuff. Here are the dividends you get back. I know they look like different amounts, but they started as equal rebates. Because they're required to be taxed by law, poorer folks who are in a lower tax bracket keep more of the money. Households in the bottom 20% do very well. They get much more cash back than their costs increase. This extra cash serves as an economic stimulus for local neighborhoods. The second and third quintiles also come out with extra cash. Even the fourth quintile just about breaks even. That means that the cost of this transition is not gonna fall on the shoulders of those who can least afford it. It's those big energy users on the right who on average are gonna end up behind. 
I want to make an important point. So please look again at the fourth quintile, that group that just about breaks even. Someone in this income group would only end up slightly behind if their emissions are average for this group. Losing money is not a requirement on a carbon tax. It's a consequence of being responsible for too many greenhouse gases. People who pollute very little, no matter what their income, will see only a small rise in expenses and could therefore also get back more than they spend. For example, my carbon footprint is pretty low. I reduce energy in so many ways, so I expect the dividend to fully compensate me. In fact, the little extra cash is a reward for good behavior. Higher prices are the direct result of carbon pollution. These bars are just average cost increases based on average pollution emissions from each of these quintiles of wealth has been responsible for. One other thing from this graph, financial investors need to divest stock and retirement portfolios from fossil fuels. We have been asking our universities loud and clear to divest, but really everybody needs to, and a carbon tax would make that shift happen. In the largest public statement of economists in history, these economists, 3,554 of them, plus every living former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen up there, by the way, is now Treasury Secretary, 27 Nobel laureate economists and these others signed a statement saying that a steadily increasing tax is the most cost-effective lever to reduce carbon emissions at the scale and speed that is necessary. All the revenue should be returned directly to US citizens through equal lump sum rebates. The majority of American families, including the most vulnerable, will benefit financially. Former Democratic candidates Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang also argue for this, as does the father of climate awareness, James Hansen, and Michael Mann. And speaking of Michael Mann, he was the climate scientist who first published the famous hockey stick curve that I showed you earlier, that it was based on. He learned firsthand about how oil companies and conservative media use PR to discredit viable ideas, or so doubt. I recommend his book, The New Climate War, which talks about the narratives big oil has used in the past to get us to where we are today and is still using to block progress in viable ideas. Another group uh, book I recommend is The Case for a Carbon Tax, Getting Past Our Hangups to Effective Climate Policy by Shu, And The Case for Carbon Dividends by Boyce is also good, but it's shorter. <laughs> okay. I feel the need to have a summary of the basics and a vocabulary tune-up. Carbon fee and dividend and carbon dividends are the same thing. EICDA is carbon dividends. You collect a fee, hopefully as upstream as possible. The consequences of this market correction reduces emissions. All the money in the fund goes back to Americans. That's it. A carbon fee has the same copy paste one, two, and three. It's simple because you're just making fossil fuels cost more and more every year. And everyone knows that in 10 or 20 years, it's gonna be unaffordable. So they start the transition and the conservation process now. To be a fee and not a tax, it must be revenue neutral. That means none of the money can be spent by the government. It doesn't grow the government. It doesn't go to the government. These are some of the ways the government can handle the money so that it's considered revenue neutral. Number one on the list is to give it all back, which is why carbon dividends is also called carbon fee and dividend. 
Fee versus tax is important for Republicans who might accept fees but are resistant to raising taxes and growing government. A carbon tax has the same one, two, and three again. Again, only the difference is how the money is spent. If any of the money is used to help the government pay for projects or services, it's a tax. When government owns any of that money and decides how to spend it, it's a tax. Now, are these progressive? That depends on the dividends. Any policy that results in trickle-down expenses without compensating lower and middle-income people is gonna be regressive. An example of a regressive tax is France when they instituted a gas tax, ostensibly to stop climate change and also have revenue for paying down the debt. It was supposed to be a win-win, except that first of all, targeting only drivers isn't super effective to stop climate change. Rural people and those who drive for a living were hit especially hard. They saw no personal benefit for the sacrifice. There was no dividend to help out. This was regressive and there were protests. The dividend is what makes it highly regressive. Now, while a carbon tax without dividends is regressive, so are regulations for the same reason. According to Stanford research, the heaviest burden for climate change regulation costs falls on people, especially lower income groups and not corporations. The reason is that companies ultimately pass on those costs to people. For the poor, basic necessities take up a bigger chunk of the budget than for the rich. Households in the lowest income group pay, as a percent of income, more than twice what households in the highest 10% of the income distribution pay. So all policies need to look at who bears the brunt of costs. Because a carbon tax raises revenue, it has the ability not only to pay for itself, but to keep lower income people whole. Does all of the revenue need to be dividended though? To qualify as a fee, that would be yes. But if we're looking at a tax and a partial rebate, then no. I think giving back at least 75% of the revenue as rebates to lower incomes is enough to satisfy the criteria. The mechanism for all of these is a price signal. Look what's too expensive or going to be too expensive. Let's get to work saving that money now by using less of it. That's the mechanism. In fancy talk, we call it a price signal. All are highly effective, varying somewhat with initial price, rate of increase, and whether there's a cap. All are highly efficient, and the more upstream the fee, the better. This is a big one. I haven't talked about it yet. Carbon pricing can leverage our national policy into a global one. It is not enough for the US to lower emissions alone. The entire world needs to have the same downwards trajectory. If we reduce our emissions, does the world follow suit? No. If we lower our own oil use, the unused surplus will cause the price of oil to drop on the international market. Incentivizing other countries, especially developing nations to buy it cheaply to develop their own economies the same way we did. We will have accomplished nothing in terms of climate change unless we can leverage our policies to have a global effect. Carbon pricing is uniquely able to solve some problems that arise when different countries have different climate goals. We don't want other nations undercutting us by selling cheap goods they produced in highly polluting ways. Nor do we want American businesses to move overseas so that they can pollute freely and cheaper. The border adjustment levels the playing field. It means that non-pricing countries that import to us will have to pay us our equivalent carbon fee on those items. 
but our businesses that export to non-pricing nations would receive a refund of their carbon fee that they paid at the time that they paid it. Our businesses therefore have no incentive to move overseas. And most importantly, this encourages other nations to adopt their own carbon pricing. How is that? Well, let's say a nation doesn't price carbon. All their imports would get charged a carbon fee at our ports for entry and American households would then receive all that money. No country would prefer to pay American citizens a tariff when instead they could collect that same money themselves and keep it within their own borders. This incentivizes countries that trade with us to price carbon themselves and those who already do to at least match our price. Right now, there are lots of nations pricing carbon, but it's a mix of different prices. Most are too low. Ours could raise those prices around the world. The EU will be implementing its border adjustment in 2026. Okay, so what about conservative appeal on the bottom line? In theory, the two on the right are as likely as any climate bill could be to get support. Republicans generally don't like mandates, regulations, or taxes. And 47 senators and 169 members of the House last session signed the public pledge to vote against increasing taxes. I have got guarded optimism for you though. We need 60 vote votes in the Senate for any bill, which means at least 10 Republicans. Except in the case of budget re resolution, which we're in right now, which only requires 51 votes. In budget reconciliation, the Senate is considering a carbon tax with a partial rebate of 75% or thereabouts to low incomes, which means it's progressive. They're also talking about a carbon border adjustment with it. They would use the rest of the money, the other 25 or so percent to pay for some of the other programs. So it's a tax, not a fee, but it only needs 51 votes in budget reconciliation. So we would like to see that. I am gonna close this chapter on carbon fee and dividend and the EICDA for a second. I have tried honestly to look for downsides, but I just think it's an excellent, important piece of legislation that we need to pass as soon as possible. Now, I want to talk about a policy we don't advocate because it's inferior to carbon dividends and it has major drawbacks. Why would I wanna talk about something that I don't want? Well, I wanna bring it up because I've seen a few articles that lump the two together, mentioning on the one hand, the benefits of ours, and then on the other hand, raising concerns about problems that actually stem from the other plan and not being clear that they're talking about two very different policies. So I would like to clear that up. There are two forms of carbon pricing. They're both called carbon pricing. There's cap and trade, which is also called an emissions trading scheme. And then there's the carbon tax, carbon fee dividends, which all have the same mechanism. Cap and trade is very different from those. It's where government sells or gives away pollution permits, but fewer than is required for business as usual kind of like musical chairs. Like musical chairs, big emitters, which means power companies and industries, scramble to buy enough permits to cover their emissions. But alas, there aren't enough permits because that's the whole point. Each entity either needs to reduce their emissions to what their permits allow or buy more permits to cover them. You can trade permits around buying and selling, but in the end, somebody has got to reduce emissions. The mechanism for emissions reductions in cap and trade is that entities either reduce emissions themselves to make a profit by being able to sell their surplus permits, 
or they reduce emissions to fit into the tight permit that they have. And the next year, the government sells or gives away fewer permits than they did the year before, and it's musical chairs again. Now, what is good about cap and trade? Well, it works with a border adjustment to have an, a global effect, that's important. The market mechanism appeals to conservatives, that's important, and emissions of the nation go down as a whole. But results can be uneven. A dirty plant can buy permits and keep polluting rather than clean up. The risks are that disadvantaged neighborhoods, frontline lower income communities who've already faced high pollution and higher rates of health disparities might get no improvement while <laughs> the air cleans up in other likely wealthier areas. Does EICDA share this flaw? No, an upstream carbon fee is even. This, this is one of its strengths. There's no mechanism of buying and selling permits that would allow any plant to escape the consequences of higher priced carbon. Cap and trade is regressive because costs are passed along and disproportionately hurt the poor. There is one version though with dividends which would not be regressive. EICDA is not regressive, it's got a dividend. The 2009 cap and trade attempt allowed politicians to favor friendly industries and donors, including some extra permits and incentives to some oil drillers and coil companies. The bill was 1400 pages long. EICDA is administered by the head of the EPA. There's no mechanism in the bill for this kind of politicking and favor granting, and it's 36 pages long. Cap and trade, it reduces emissions, but honestly, it's unsavory to think that a polluter can pay the government for permission to not reduce pollution in somebody's neighborhood. For EICDA, prices just go up. Nobody pays for permission to pollute. It just becomes too expensive to do it. Cap and trade is less effective than carbon fee because industries must be large enough for the trouble of being administered. So there are fewer sectors covered. The EU's cap and trade includes over 11,000 entities, and yet it only covers 42% of emissions. The EICDA covers 83%. Cap and trade is super complicated to administer. Who's in charge of designing permits, deciding who gets what, monitoring the trades, monitoring for compliance, assessing fines for non-compliance. The EU scheme includes 11,000 entities. That is a lot of administration, which means it's expensive too. EICDA is dead simple. 36 pages, collect fees where they already are selling or doing paperwork and let the consequences happen. Cap and trade is so complex, it takes a long time to implement. EICDA goes into effect nine months after passage, but the effects start before then due to the price signal as soon as it's passed. And really importantly, there is no cap and trade bill in Congress. It's not the conversation, it's pretty out of favor. There's not one bill. Now carbon dividends, we should talk about because it's viable, it's being discussed. It is, if it's not included in the budget reconciliation, which we hope it is, then the EICDA still has all those 85 co-sponsors and we will get to work to get more and get it passed. CCL's founder, Marshall Saunders, died on my birthday two years ago. And I remember him on my birthday for what we owe him. He was a good man. He was a philanthropist who dedicated himself to fighting hunger. And when he realized that the people in government that he thought were taking care of climate change were not, he started climate work. His focus was always the wholeness, health, and dignity of all. And his spirit guides CCL. I do mean that sincerely. We know the poor suffer the most from environmental degradation and climate change. And we are driven to improve that, not just for Americans, but for those in poverty and distress all over the world.
already suffering from climate change. Our goal is a solution big enough for the problem while ensuring that the burden is not borne by those who shouldn't bear it. Oh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to present our hope for a better future. Wow, that was so informative, Mary. Thank you so, so much. Missy, what do you have to add? <laughs> well, I can never do justice like Mary did on the topic. So um, I was asked to just kind of give a, a really high level kind of rapid fire overview of some of the things happening locally. And uh, happy to do that, happy to take questions, but I also, uh, I share questions for Mary that I wanna unpack. So let me just awesome. go really fast. That's great. <laughs> hey everybody. Uh, I have the really distinct pleasure of working locally, both in Ann Arbor, but also throughout the region to help advance our climate and our equity goals. And that certainly incur includes policies like what we're talking about here tonight. Um, but I just kind of want to do a real quick punch list of some of the things that we've got going on locally that we're pretty excited about. Uh, I spent a large portion of my day today out on our capped landfill where we are exploring a large solar uh, initiative installation that will come in. It's roughly 20 megawatts, God forbid, right now. To give you a sense, our community in Ann Arbor uses about 440 megawatts, but our local government uses about 24 megawatts. So this system is sized to be roughly the equivalent of municipal usage. But here's what's really cool about that project. Um, our state legislature has not enabled something called community solar. So I happen to be sitting in a home where I've got solar on my roof right now and I have a battery storage. So I know that I'm not pulling from the grid. I'm pulling from the battery that was charged all day by the solar system. Some of you have really beautiful trees, right? That are providing all kinds of glorious value for our community. You may not have a roof that's solar viable. Some of you are in rentals. You don't own that roof. Solar is expensive to access. So what we did is we actually intervened in a rate case and got permission from the Michigan Public Service Commission to turn this into a community solar offering. There's a lot of story about how we did that and why we did that, but I'm delighted to say that today um, we're getting bids on this project. And if it comes back reasonably priced, you can invest in your community and get renewable energy that's generated here by a local install. It'll be the first in our service territory and we're really excited about that. We're also moving forward legislation at the state level to help enable more choice within the energy market. We're working locally on local solar installs. We're planting trees and working on ecosystem works. Our local uh, climate impacts most acutely that we experience are flooding. I talk very fast, so I'm sorry. Um, flooding is really intense. We've had a 44% increase in precipitation falling on our, in our community over the last 30 years. Give you a sense like that may mean nothing. Think about Michigan Stadium. If you've sat in that stadium, big stadium, wonderful stadium, lots of great noise. We actually have a good football team, watch out. Uh, but that 44% that increase that we've experienced over the last 30 years, that's the equivalent of 23 more Michigan stadiums full of water every year falling on our community. That is a lot of water. That is more water than what our system is designed to handle. We flood and we've experienced this all of the time. So we're working quite a lot on green infrastructure, um, additional retention options, and ways to kind of live with that water. We also are experiencing more intense storms. We saw it. Um, we all are experiencing power, power outages. We have a pretty susceptible grid. So we're working a lot on resilience, uh, backup power storage, microgrids, and other technologies that will help us kind of increase resilience. And then we're working on social strategies, how neighbors get to know one another and help take care of each mm -hmm. other, because that makes our lives better when we know the people in our community and we'll, we build relationships with them. That's a huge portion of our work too. Um, we're working on 44 actions at the moment. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, we have a carbon neutrality plan called A20, unanimously adopted by mm -hmm. council and it's all hands on deck. 
Um, telework is one of the things that we're picking up on that wasn't really on our radar when we adopted our carbon neutrality plan, because I don't think the world realized pre-pandemic what was possible with telework. Uh, also naming it's really unequal in terms of access to telework. Certain industries are just not capable of doing it, but how do we actually support telework where it's possible? And how do we make it so people can live, work, and recreate close together so that they don't, you could choose to live far away, but you could actually choose to live close. And that's something a lot of people don't have a choice for right now because it's quite expensive to live close to where you might live, work, and recreate. So we're working on affordable housing and workforce housing because that's actually part of the sustainability movement. So it's all hands on deck uh, locally. I'm happy to talk. Uh, I don't. I want to leave time for questions because, like, I think we all have them. But I just want to share uh, that we have a lot going on in the community. We're actively recruiting ambassadors to join us in this work. We always have volunteer events. Uh, this is this is the moment. Um, so I'll just end by sharing one of my favorite sayings, which is, "We are. Um, I am at least of the first generation that's feeling the impacts of climate change, and I'm also of the last generation to do anything about it. So we have no better time to act than today. Get to work." Thanks, Missy. Talk about a call to action. Um, thank you. I, as I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm so impressed and we're so lucky to live in a county that's so responsive and is so collaborative in response to this really existential threat. Um, so thanks for all your work, both of you. Um, I want to, before we get into Q&A, I want to uh, say something that we neglected at the beginning, and that is that the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization and our goal is to increase voter engagement through education um, and voter registration and so forth. So, so just um, we are a nonpartisan organization. So I want to make that clear. Um, one, of, one of the questions that I have, um, I think, well, for both of you, mostly for Mary right now, though, um, is um, I, you, you talked about the progressive nature of the carbon um, carbon fee and dividend. Um, nevertheless, some, uh, you know, some in the environmental justice movement are, um, are opposed to um, HR 2307. And so I wonder if you can speak to that again um, explicitly. Um, some, one of, some of the arguments are that uh, communities most hurt by climate change in the first place um, suffer more under um, carbon fee and dividend. So again, you spoke to that, but I'd like to just clarify again and maybe talk about um, what what representatives are sponsoring um, two three zero seven. So can you clarify? I can. I can try, Teresa. Thank you very much. Um, we do hear. I am unaware of specific or a lot of specific pushback from progressives against HR two three zero seven. Um, I know that there is, I have seen pushback against carbon pricing, just in general. Carbon pricing mechanisms are regressive, um, not necessarily a good idea. Um, but pushback against HR 2307 is not as hard, is not as easy to come by because it is, it does have the dividend and it has the ability to be um, progressive. Um, as far as, um, oh, you said something I wanted to address and let, let me just address um, who is supporting it. Um, for, I wonder if I can, I wonder if I can share this. Um, would you, can I just share this um, photo? Sure. Here, there you go. Okay, so 
This shows basically who our co-sponsors are and which caucuses they belong to. Um, if you look at the progressive caucus down there at the, the bottom of the second, it says that 46% of the co congressional progressive caucus supports it. Um, in, what's interesting is that in that group, first of all, 46% of the progressives are already, are already co-sponsors. You don't have to be a co-sponsor to like it or to be willing to vote for it. Being a co-sponsor is really a step out that says, I'm a leader in this, I want this, come talk to me. I'm willing to stake, my, to stake myself on this. I'm out with it. So we obviously have more, it's, it's a lot to be a co-sponsor, but of the progressives, the chair of the progressive caucus, Pramila Jayapal, Jayapal, sorry, um, and the deputy chair, numbers one and two, Katie Porter, they're all, they're both endorsers. Two out of the three emeritus chairs are co-sponsors and six of the nine vice chairs are co-sponsors. So the math says that 10 out of the 15 um, members of Congress who are in leadership positions or 67% are co-sponsors of the bill. And in the black caucus, it's, it's even higher. The chair, uh, Joyce Beatty, the second vice chair, the whip secretary, member at large, it turns out that they have seven leadership positions and five of the seven are co-sponsors of the bill. That's 71%. So um, I understand progressives' concerns, I really do, but I have to say, uh, I mean, their concerns are our concerns. We, we have the same concerns and we're on the same team, the same page, I hope. But um, truthfully, getting emissions down immediately at power plants is for the sake of, of lower income and distressed and vulnerable populations who are disadvantaged already. So speed is of the essence and the jobs creation that has been forecasted by having that dividend is huge as well. You know so, what, you didn't mention that before. What, what, what about the job creation? Um, there was a report that forecasted like 2.3 million more jobs if uh, after a passage of carbon dividends, carbon fee and dividend, our bill basically, um, due to um, extra money in the cash of, um, of pockets of people in lower income neighborhoods, um, more local jobs, you know, your hairdresser, your salon, you're just local jobs, as well as um, the green jobs as well that are gonna be available. So it was basically, you know, a stimulus, a financial stimulus that boosts the economy. Is okay. what it comes down to it's like the the stimulus for COVID, except that it's a stimulus for carbon. So it boosts the economy and it it in, improves the job situation. Okay, Missy, do you want to speak to that at all? Uh, like local jobs that we might see. Yeah. Um, so for us right now, we actually have um, for those I don't think I mentioned this. Our carbon neutrality plan A two zero sets the goal of an equitable and just decarbonization by the year twenty thirty. And one of the challenges we have is labor. I mean, that, that's a lot of work that we're gonna have to have. And so having the signal to decarbonize in this way uh, would help us actually unlock a lot of the, the workforce that we need because you need sort of that chicken and egg. You need to know you've got the work, right? To train all the people to do the work because you don't have people trained to do the work, but no one, no work actually available for them. So I think that's really important. And just because I have the floor, I'm totally gonna ask a question, which I have sort of wondered about. And I don't know, Mary, if you could help me you, you mentioned the value of going upstream in terms of emissions. Why not go downstream? Because one of the things that has always sort of been perplexing to me is I don't want the carbon out of the ground. So why, why would we let it be out in circulation upstream? Why wouldn't we go downstream? 
so you're talking about things like banning, banning on fracking, banning on coal mines, just making them illegal, which is um, actually, no, I was thinking more about the price signal. So doing exactly what you're proposing and that you mentioned a few times that, let's see, I tried to get your exact quote. Um, the further upstream we are, the better it is yes. in terms of where we put the price signal. But if we put it, if we put the price signal at the point of extraction, yes, even though it would pass for it, like why, why aren't we doing it there? Why aren't we doing it at the gas pump instead? No, at the no. point of extraction out of no, the ground. like in the ground, that's what, like when we're drilling, when we're pulling, like that's exactly waiting. that is. Hmm, I'm not positive. I understand that is exactly where we want the fees to be put at, right at the point of extraction. The, the first possible place they can come out. So that once they have drilled it, um, you can calculate how much CO2 is gonna come from, whether it's coal, natural gas or, or oil, you know how much CO2 that is going to cause when it's burned. So there's a fee on that. You know, you're gonna, I'm sorry, because you kept saying upstream and that's what kept getting me. I was like, what am I missing? You kept saying it's better oh. upstream, it's better upstream. And so- mm, Sorry, better uh, upstream means at, at the drill, at the, at the coal mine, at the well, at the first point of sale, at the port of entry, just as far upstream as possible, pretty much at we, the We mine. use it in the climate science in the other way. Downstream oh. would be like a point. So that's, um, it's yeah. inverted, but thank you for clarifying. Uh, yeah, so, the gas <laughs> tax is not what we want. We wanted it all the way, what I'm saying is, upstream before before it hits the economy yeah Same you thing. want to get it how about this you want to get it at the root yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. get it at the root so ccl yeah. has its language and i'm so used to saying upstream versus downstream that i don't know <laughs> yeah that's what okay. we so so you guys are on the same page just yep. using different language yeah yep. okay so um are any members of congress from michigan co-sponsors of the bill of hr2307 um, we have three co-sponsors from Michigan. We have um, Dan Kildee from, from um, Flint. Um, we have Andy Levin, who's like um, Oakland and Macomb counties. And Brenda Lawrence is in um, East Detroit. She's um, our third Michigan co-sponsor. Okay, that's, that's great. And then do you know where, I mean, I, obviously this is in the house. Where do our senators stand um, on carbon fee and I, I can only give public statements, but I can say in the public, um, Senator Peters has uh, endorsed carbon fee and dividend with 100% dividend um, strongly, that he's very much in favor of that. Senator Stabenow has not made any public comments that I'm aware of, so I can't talk to that. Okay. All right. Thank you. And you said at one point that 83% of emissions are covered um, uh, by the EICDA um, or HR 2307. Um, what happened to the other 17%? Where's, why, why aren't those covered? Um, if you look at the pie chart that I showed you, um, there's like 9.1% that I didn't have a check mark on. That's agriculture. This agriculture piece is not tackled by this because that's not a fossil fuel. Um, there's really no mechanism. We're just, we're just pricing fossil fuel oil and coal as they come out of the ground and cow methane from burps and farts and and agricultural practices is not it's just not the mechanism something else needs to address that um, another three percent comes from leaked methane that we wow. would like to address uh, in the bill it says all all um all those policies that address leaked methane you know are completely unimpacted the problem is we don't really have the technology to find all those leaks. So we're counting uh -huh. them as un, 
uncovered because they're going. That's another 3%. There's like 2% um, or 1.2% that comes from uh, two exemptions in the bill. Uh, hang on, I wonder if I can find that. If it, yeah, 1.2% from farm diesel, the red diesel that already um, has a, um, um, a tax break on it. Uh, maintains the tax break. So the, that means that the, the combines, the trucks that are used while farming, not the trucks that go to and from the farm, but the while farming equipment, because that equipment doesn't turn over very quickly. And that's very punishing. And it also raises local food costs. So the red diesel is accepted, exempted, and so is um, certain military uses. Mm -hmm. So that comes out to 1.2%. Then there's like the um, territories, US territories has a small amount. And lastly, I think a fairly big amount is the um, um, the methane from rice paddies um, and from, um, hang on a second, from methane leakage of, of trash dumps. So all of those are counted as, as stuff that are, that just can't get covered by us. You can't. By, the, by this, hopefully by something else. Yeah. So right now, aren't we, we are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, right, with tax dollars? Yes, I think we are. And I don't, I don't remember, I don't have the figures for how much we're subsidizing, like actively. I, I know that like um, one of the um, major newspapers put out that uh, a figure that was in the billions of dollars that we're, that are, are implied subsidies. That's all the stuff that I talked about that we're paying yeah. for extra military and extra infrastructure and extra insurance and property damage. There are billions of dollars in implied subsidies, but there's also like legit real subsidies, um, which have to do with you know assistance in permitting, assistance in locating places to drill, just subsidies all down the chain. So right. I don't know what to do about those. Those are, somebody else needs to address that. So HR two three hundred seven doesn't touch any of that nonsense. It it does one thing. It does yeah, one thing, <laughs> and it's short, sweet, and it does that thing. Yeah, uh, so. 36 pages. I should think members of Congress would be really welcome. You know what? Bill. It's, it's got one and a half inch margins and it's double spaced. I, I printed it like a normal document and it was 14. Okay. It was totally readable. I mean, the language is lovely. It's bill talk, but um, you can read it in a day. Uh, yeah. That's fantastic. So, so um, Missy, by the way, just jump in anytime. Okay. Can I ask a quick question of Missy? She's down there. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Missy, so uh, the last we checked on community solar, that has been a big deal for us. We, uh, first of all, uh, my, this is my husband's huge pet peeve. We put solar panels on the roof, of course. We drive an electric car. We do, you know, put in geothermal. We did, we've done a lot of stuff to try to, you know, keep our, keep our uh, footprint small. But when we put these solar panels on the roof, um, they were added to the value of the house. And so the financial benefit for anybody who doesn't have a lot of money to go put solar panels on their roof is way reduced. And that was an Ann Arbor problem. It was like Ann Arbor and one other city did that and the rest of the state didn't do that. Did that get fixed? And okay, cause I should know, my husband should tell me but we have not talked about this. Um, and then community solar, you said that we can start investing because that's like something we would love to do. We'd like to say, oh, yay, you're going to do a school. Can we put some money into that? And can we get some of the, mm. 
Yes, no? Beautiful, beautiful. Um, ish. So let me take both of those. Um, when there was a state law that required when you put solar panels on, you had to reassess property values. Ann Arbor and one other community were the only community actually doing it. We also were fighting it at the state level. Guess what? It's revoked. So oh, it's, um, it doesn't exist anymore. So if you get solars, uh, solar, your house does not get reassessed. It does at point of sale. Like when you sell it, for most people, that actually works in your favor because solar adds about 4%, um, somewhere okay. between 3 and 4% to the, the value of your home. So but it doesn't right. disincentivize you putting solar panels on. It's the big I mean, kind deal. of the opposite, right? Like yeah. it helps incentivize that sale. So that is completely gone. Community solar is not enabled. Um, the legislature has taken it up multiple times, but it, it's it's not a requirement. The utilities have to offer it. So it means you your utility has to be willing to offer community solar. There's a longer story. I'll just say we intervened in a rate case and said, hey, we want this as a consumer and we'll take all your risk. I'll buy everything you produce if not a single person in the community signs up for this community solar project that we're doing at the landfill because it's sized for municipal operations. And I have to power my operations with 100% renewables. So like, Win-win, right? But the goal is that the community buys it all up. And then I make my demand and I move it to do the next community solar project. And then the community buys all that up. And then I keep doing this until we have solar everywhere. So you can't yet do it at your school because we don't yet have enabling legislation that makes them do that. So it has to be project specific that you can invest. Assuming this project moves forward, we're getting quotes now. Um, hopefully you can sign up starting January, February. Oh, that's terrific. That'd be Great. amazing. Yeah. So, so um, Mary, um, did, how say that um, HR two twenty three zero seven is passed by the House and and by the Senate, and uh, how, how do we make sure it's not overturned in the next administration, like the Clean Power Plan was? <laughs> um, the way they're passed is differently. I mean, that's that is such a good question. Actually, all of your questions are good questions. Um, that is um, the way the Clean Power Plan was passed is that Obama didn't have the votes. He had a very difficult Congress to work with. It was very partisan and, and they didn't want him to have any victories. He had no success and no path forward to a carbon price, which is actually what he really wanted. Um, that was his preferred idea. Um, so he had to basically go alone as an executive branch member and do the Clean Power Plan with the EPA. Um, it was, not the way he would have wanted to, but it also had problems because what you do executively, you can take away executively. Mm -hmm. So all that work that went into that could easily just be canceled by just, just cross it off. And that's what Trump did. So he just canceled it right there. And what a president does, another president can undo. So legislation, what legislation does, another body of legislation can undo, but look how hard it is to get it passed. It's not mm -hmm. going to be that easy to get it unpassed, you know, especially, especially buy-in. Think about everybody getting dividends. Once everybody is getting dividends and the dividends are going up every year, up every year, the likelihood, I mean, the pushback against getting rid of this is going to be difficult because mm -hmm. taking away dividends is not a popular idea. Especially um, jobs have also been created. Yeah. So yeah. that adds staying power. And then one more thing is that the Clean Power Plan, for example, was uh, caught up in a bunch of court cases. Whereas this legislation, if there's one thing that Congress definitely has the authority to do under the Constitution, it's levy taxes. And this is a corporate tax. It's, it's basically nothing more than a corporate tax uh, on, on fossil fuel companies. So the, it, 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 it has all the authority in the world to do that. I doubt any legislation is going to, any um, 
sorry, any, any, have I used the word legislation when I meant to say lawsuits? Sorry, I doubt any lawsuits. Oh, I'm sorry if I've been unclear. I doubt any lawsuits are going to go anywhere against this bill, whereas um, lawsuits against the um, Clean Power Plan got it, you know, caught up in courts for quite a while. So okay. that's another. Obviously, it'll be stronger with bipartisan support. What kind of um, what's the CCL doing to encourage bipartisan support? Mm, good question. We are nonpartisan. Okay. Regardless of what our individuals are, we are nonpartisan and we try very hard to, um, to work that way. We meet with all offices in Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and we sit down. This is our, this is our way of doing things. We sit down to conversations around a table that are calm and we try to find some common ground with them. Uh, and the approach of building relationships with each office is very helpful. Even more helpful though, is having people who speak the same language. We, we have a number of conservatives in CCL, not as many as Democrats, uh, but the last conference I went to in person had, we had one tenth of the people who showed up were from the conservative caucus, which was phenomenal. We were so happy to have them. So we've had lobby days that were strictly for the conservative caucus members. They came out to DC and they talked to only conservative members of Congress and they reported back. Nobody reports detail details because we keep our meetings confidential, but they reported back that the level of conversation was completely different when you have six conservative people talking to a conservative member of Congress. It's a, they, these people have been in both kinds of, of lobby meetings, one where it's mixed or Democrat dominant and one where it's conservative. And the conversations were very much different and better um, and more open with, um, with conservatives. So wow. we reach out to conservatives. We think they ought to like it. There are a lot of conservatives who do they're all welcome to come to our meetings. We have no politics. It's hard to say that we have no politics discussed at a meeting because of course we're talking politics, but we have no partisanship. Partisan politics, it, right? No partisan right. politics in our meetings. You were nonpartisan. So right. that's how we try. A lot of um, religious congregations are active in climate um, justice as well and in, in, in the climate emergency had a couple of slides that quoted the papal encyclical from 2014 I think it was mm -hmm. um, calling on Catholics to um, protect the earth mm -hmm. and um, so it feels to me that, that those are some also some good allies for CCL in speaking with members of Congress and you said 661 chapters I think right Yes, whatever the number was. I've changed that slide a lot. So hopefully it's going up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do have a lot of, um, we have, uh, first of all, the Pope has called for a price on carbon, um, specifically, <laughs> not a carbon tax, but a price on carbon. Um, we do have a, a lot of people reaching out to parishes, to churches of some kind or another. And that's where we get a lot of our endorsements. We have uh, endorsements from parishes that are uh, Catholic and Baptist and Buddhist. We have Jewish and Presbyterian and you name it, a lot of Unitarians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's kind of a big, a big area. But um, 
we actually have a couple of sort of convents and Catholic uh, higher higher learning institutions like um, university, Catholic universities, small ones, small private ones who have endorsed the bill. There's, right. a, there's an entire chapter in, um, in Adrian. I don't know if it's still all nuns, but at the time it was started, I remember I went to the first meeting to help Pat out because he was starting the chapter in Adrian. Every person there was one of the sisters from the Siena Heights um, convent. Mm. Or, you know, so that was that was kind of neat. They're very active, he says. So that's great. And I know a lot of young evangelicals are actually um, very concerned about protecting the earth. And um, um, who else is I thinking about? Well, your slide on on young Republicans, Republicans under 47, seven to one uh, support. Yes, seven to one. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's very hopeful. Yeah. I have one last question because we're running out of time. Um, for those of us listening who want to see this um, pass, this bill pass and House, Senate and be enacted, what should we do? Ah, yeah. So I, I should never give a talk without my last slide. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Too late. Being how you can help if this if this if this resonates with you, how can you? And I didn't do that, so that's kind of ridiculous. But um, we uh, uh, you can contact CCL and Arbor CCL, obviously, and you can ask how you can help. And then there's a million things you can do right there. Um, however, if you just want to help briefly one time, have an impact of any kind, um, we are in a campaign to um, President Biden. Um, and our senators and our members of Congress. But right now we're trying to get 20,000 uh, calls and emails to President Biden um, so that he knows that we are in support of carbon dividends or, or a carbon tax and rebate in the budget reconciliation is actually what we're asking for. Um, that, what we've heard about with the 75% thereabouts um, dividend back to lower income communities and then a border adjustment. It's, and then the price rate is exactly ours as I've heard so far being discussed, um, we want that, that would be great. So we are asking um, lots of people to call um, the White House, rather email the White House and ask for that short and sweet, just please put carbon pricing in the budget reconciliation, please accept that price. And I think um, we've had over 14,000 people, different people, not people calling again and again, but 14,000 different people have called since September 7th we had uh, um, we had ten thousand people in a three week period call um, our senators. Um, so we were trying to make a big impact. In fact, right. in in Michigan, we had almost nine hundred different unique people call Senators Peter and Stabenow to let them know we wanted to like make a spike so that they would see us. Sure. Um, yeah. So we had this big push. But letters to Congress, not not letters that you have to think hard about. I, I mean, an email an email and a phone yeah, call, yeah. a voicemail. Yeah. Um, the more people, the better who call and ask for um, carbon pricing in budget reconciliation. That's uh -huh. the message. That's all you really have to say. You don't have to explain why. You don't have to give facts yeah. figures. You just call and say, please support carbon pricing and budget, budget reconciliation. Thank you. Okay. And that'll Great. do it. <laughs> so um, I think, I can't tell who's on the call, but if Ginny's on the call, maybe she can put the link to our, um, tool we like to count how many people we've done this is how i got my sort of statistics is because people have tallied them uh, yeah, if, you, if, you would, if any member of the team could do that i would appreciate that if jenny or somebody could put it it's a ccl 
cclusa.org slash white house. And I believe white house has a hyphen. I believe it's white dash house. And if you go there, it'll be a, a, you know, there's a message you just click send and you will be a new unique sender. And that would be awesome. The more the awesome. better. And Everybody. just to say, this has been posted in the chat, so the link is there. Thanks, Allison. Yep. Great. Thank you. Whoever okay, did everybody, you have your marching orders now. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to, to call, uh, we have a monthly calling campaign um, where people get a, a quick reminder once a month that says, hey, today's your day to call Congress. Um, and if you click on your email that you get or your text that you get, it will, it will have it all right up there. Like, here's the phone number, you know. There it is. And then it'll also tally so we know how well we're doing and you know, it helps us know how effective we are. Wonderful. So joining the monthly calling campaign would be a great idea. Just once a month, make five minutes worth of, you know, do five minutes worth of work and that would help. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mary, thank you for your expertise and your time. It's been incredibly informative. Missy, thank you for giving us the local perspective. And all of you here, thank you for joining us for Bruised and Views. Uh, the program committee's focus on the climate and uh, emergency continues. Uh, the Lunch and Learn program for issues regarding solar installations on agricultural land, which is really interesting. The speaker for that will be MSU Extension Educator M. Charles Gould. And then next month for Brews and Views, we're hosting the George Willis Pack Professor of Environment and Sustainability at U University of Michigan, Kyle White. Professor White is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and serves on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. His topic is environmental justice and federal policy. So that's an interesting follow-up from this week. And thank you again to the members of the um, Climate Advocacy Group for that wonderful recommendation. Lunch and Learn will host Gavin Edwards, a professor of analytical chemistry at ENU, with a talk entitled Detroit's Most Polluted Zip Code, History, Science, and Environmental Justice. So we have some great programs coming up. We hope all of you will join us for those informative programs. And thank you again, Mary. It was really great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really grateful. Really appreciate it. And thanks, Missy. For everything you're doing. It's Indeed. a lot of work. It's very ambitious. We're really excited. Go Ann Arbor. Go everyone. Yeah, go Ann Arbor. <laughs> All hands on deck. <laughs> Thanks, Thank everyone. you.